Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, a podcast devoted to all things RPGs. I'm your host, Cap Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat. How are you hanging in there? I am. Well, it's really hot now here in San Francisco, so I guess we're joining the rest of the country in terms of actual heat and weather. <laughs> Welcome to hell. Is it hell? Is it? Depends on your outlook. We're we're 27 Celsius right now, which is very nice. There's not too much humidity. I don't know what that means. I am an American. I do not subscribe to your centigrade. <laughs> uh, 80-something? Anyway, we are going to brave the heat this week and talk about uh, a summary topic. It is the 20th anniversary of a little game called Chrono Cross, and we are going to remember Square's Summer of Adventure this week, Nadia. Mm-hmm. That should be fun. I remember it quite well. And in the meantime, if you want to follow us on social media, I am on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every single Wednesday, except for this week, because apparently we forgot. We for- Sorry about that. I was on vacation and Kat was preoccupied. So uh, if you noticed something was missing in your life, that was probably it. We apologize. It won't happen next time. Yes, we will be back. I promise you'll get your RPG headlines and your your regularly scheduled essay from Nadia. If you go and subscribe, you can go and subscribe on the website. Before we continue on to the main topic, let's uh, talk a little bit about RPG news, Nadia. I've got a few items right here. I think the biggest one this week is that there was more cyberpunk gameplay shown through their Nightwire streaming, which they are doing regular episodes of because we are a lot closer to the release of Cyberpunk than you would think. Did you have a chance to watch that one, Nadia? I did watch at least a part of it. Um, I kind of got a feel for the classes and maybe for the weapons and the world in general and I, I, about the music too. That was an interesting segment as well. I I really enjoyed the music segment. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed watching the Scandinavian heavy metal guy. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to heavy metal, you get your stuff at Scandinavia. And uh, it was like in Sweden, right? And they were recording in this very traditional Swedish house. Yes, that's a lot of fun. And also we got to see a katana, which looked pretty dang badass. Uh, and we saw the life pass, which uh, were newly introduced. You can be a nomad, a street kid, or a corpo. And <laughs> corpo, a corpo, so you can be part of the corporations. Mm-hmm. If you, have you ever read "It Can Happen Here" by Sinclair Lewis? No, I haven't. That sounds interesting. What's it about? "It Can Happen Here" is a book that was written in the 1930s that basically imagined a Nazi-type regime rising in America. A lot of people were recommending it when Donald Trump got elected, but that's why I probably heard of it. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, the people who subscribe to the president's brand of fascism in that book are called corpos. Oh, okay. Interesting. I was thinking like, Corpo, the evil robot. <laughs> I am the evil I am Corpo. <laughs> I am submit. here to crush, kill, and destroy. You will submit your TPS reports. So the life paths affect how your choices and quests can kind of unfold, and it allows you to negotiate with different people in the game. Uh, an example that was given was during the quest was uh, you steal a rollback bot back from a game. If you're a corpo, this is from Games Radar, 
If you're a corpo, you'll understand the situation better from the corporation's perspective. You know, what would the brands think? Someone please think of the brands. Whereas the street kid will be better equipped to negotiate with the gang. And nomads won't be as friendly with the gang, but they'll understand more about how they were able to steal the robot from a sophisticated corporation. So uh, Mm. it's a a bit of role-playing kind of weaved in there. Definitely. Do you have an idea of what you want to be yet? Hmm. I think my initial knee-jerk reaction is to want to be a nomad. How about you? Yeah, I definitely had the knee-jerk reaction to being a nomad. Um, Of course, it doesn't seem like there'll be a lot of wandering outside the city in this game. It could be wrong. I don't know. It seems like it because there is a car that you can drive around and I saw in in the desert. So that looked like it was taking place outside the city. So it seems like a relatively large world. Yeah, I guess I was thinking maybe that was a cutscene or something, but I guess it could definitely be uh, an open world that you can explore outside the city. That would be pretty great. I'd love to see how that natural world or what remains of it interacts with uh, the people and the city. Interestingly, the three jobs seem to be about equally popular with fans so far, uh, with the least popular being Corpo, but it's at about 30% versus the other two. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I I have no interest in being a Corpo. I was thinking my second pick would be a street kid, but something about the Nomad just appealed to me. So did you come away from the Nightwire episode feeling more excited, less excited, or about the same? I feel a little more excited for it. I'm definitely going to dive in and see what I can see with the game. And uh, I might end up enjoying myself. I still think that, you know, sweary dialogue is hilarious, even though it's not supposed to be. But, uh, eh, I can put up with it. I'll get used to it. I'm about 5% more interested than I was. And I was already (laughs) pretty interested in cyberpunk. But I think just kind of seeing it in action. I mean, I love the the presentation. It's a beautiful looking game. Uh, it looks like such a dense role-playing experience. I know that there's going to be so much to chew through on this game. Uh, obviously, I'm a little concerned about the fact that it's taking an inherently political kind of setting and seemingly mm-hmm. not having anything to say, that they're kind of taking all of the, the trappings of cyberpunk, uh, including the vaguely racist stuff. <laughs> yes. and But they're they're not actually delving into the meaning of any of it. It's just kind of a skin. It's a cool thing that they're doing. Yeah, I am a little worried about that. Um, I just get the feeling that CD Projekt Red doesn't want to make anybody mad. And cyberpunk, the whole point of cyberpunk is rebellion, pushing back against the man, you know, espionage, terrorism, that sort of thing. And uh, if they just kind of make it a, well, everybody's bad sort of story, then that's going to be a little bit, eh. Well, we'll see. I mean, they are pulling it directly from a role-playing module, so they're not creating it from whole cloth or whatever, but so they're being faithful to the original role-playing module when they're creating this. It's just at the same time, they have to kind of write their own story out of it, and what they're producing right now is kind of like, eh, (laughs) I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's definitely a wait-and-see moment. I'm not going to get mad about it until I have something to really get mad about. No, Nadia, get mad now. This is what you do on the internet. Arr, I'm angry now. Arr, rage. Final Fantasy VII Remake Survey. Nadia, the survey is in. Two-thirds of the players took the stairs. I love that they surveyed that. <laughs> I wouldn't even think to survey it, but I took the stairs. Did you take the stairs? I did not take the stairs. You did not take... What happens when you take the elevator? I just had to fight a lot of people. 
So it was kind of like the original game then, because, yeah, I remember in the original game, you take the elevator, and it freaks out, and it stops at certain floors, and there's little, there's enemies there mm-hmm. to meet you. Yes, that um, was pretty much what was happening. I couldn't find the stairs. Oh, okay. They're off to the side. I wanted to run up them. Because <laughs> you go to it's the actually, parking garage first, right? Yes. Yes, you do. And it's actually hilarious, uh, Barrett grousing the whole way up, and cloud trying to be cool and they just gradually get slower and slower and slower as you progress is is pretty funny yeah i think somebody wrote about the stair sequence it might have actually been katie talking about how tifa's kind of lightly dancing up the stairs and yes. barrett is complaining really loudly it really highlights their individual personalities and i'm really glad they kept that sequence in yeah, me too. It was it was great. It's also sold about 5 million copies, Nadia. Do you think that is a good number for Final Fantasy VII Remake Part 1? I think so. Square Enix seems happy with it. Um, a lot of that is digital because, of course, the coronavirus really limited their physical supply. I, I actually remember uh, going into a Walmart once around uh, in March sometime. Sorry, April when the game came out. And uh, there was a message on the, the game case saying, you know, Due to the virus, we did not have Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I was thinking to myself, man, if I went back to the 90s and I saw that and I saw that sign, that would just blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome so, to our 2020 hell- hellscape. Seriously. So I get the feeling that their physical supplies were limited. Uh, I know a lot of my friends complained about not getting their special edition in on time. Uh, but their digital sales really boomed because of the virus. So I think all things considered, that's a that's a pretty good number. And either way, they seem to be eager to go on to part two. So we're all good. Yeah, I'm glad that it's continuing onward. If I were Square, a little, I would be a little nervous because it would seem that they might be in for diminishing returns with part two. There will be plenty of people who don't decide to pick up the second part or move on. And there will be plenty of people who are like, well, you know, I didn't play the original, so I don't want to play part two. So I want to be shocked if part two ends up being actually a fair bit lower. Yeah, it's very possible. It's always diminishing returns with, with games that are in parts. And that's a risk that Square Enix is taking by dividing things up. But of course, they would have been taking another risk by delaying and delaying until you get a whole game out. So there's no easy win in this situation. Well, if you push it to... Uh, the PS5 and the PC, that that will definitely help, I think. Yeah, and I imagine whenever they're done with their parts, hopefully part two is the end of it, I doubt it, but whenever they're no. done, It'll they'll be, just... There'll be like three parts, I bet. One for each Three seems about region. Yeah, I guess so. So they'll just like maybe release a compilation, say, here you go. I would buy that compilation. I probably would. And then it would sit on my shelf and I would not play it. I have so many games like that. My uh, Trails of Cold Steel collection that you gave me, or the first game, rather, is still on my shelf. And I was dusting yesterday saying, hmm, I remember when we recorded a podcast on this thing. (laughs) Bloodlines 2 delayed to 2021, Nadia. I have no insight on the actual development of Bloodlines 2, but I've kind of noticed that it seems like they've been pushing it back a fair amount. I don't know if it's a content thing or if they're having trouble uh, behind the scenes or what? Bloodlines is really Eric's jurisdiction. He loves Bloodlines, so I don't really have much of an opinion on this. Just the usual, well, there might be internal problems, like he said. Uh, coronavirus, of course, is screwing everything up, so yes. I'm just not surprised. If anyone's delaying their games, I just give a shrug and say, eh, coronavirus. 
That's a fair point. I think that a lot of games are getting delayed just because coronavirus is such a bastard and having to work remotely to create these games is actually kind of a miracle that any game is going to get released on time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we work remotely, of course, but we're so used to it and we're not trying to make a game either. (laughs) Yeah, we're not trying to create a game and there are so many specialized things like uh, audio capture and motion Mm -hmm. capture Um, and branching narratives in the Kelly Gilmore episode, if you go listen to it, there was a really, Jeff was asking like, how does motion capture work during coronavirus and she's like well you have to set up very specific times to get people into the studio and obviously you have to observe all these measures and it's a lot slower Mm -hmm. than you would be able to do uh, in general if you were doing it without the coronavirus and social distancing so that's just one of the many considerations I feel yeah definitely it's it's just crazy how much this has impacted our lives it's just a ripple effect that just travels over everything and not only that Bloodlines 2 team seems rather small, and it seems like they want to be making a pretty large, meaty RPG, and then they have the next-gen considerations because it's coming on an Xbox Series X. So it's kind of a situation where there's probably just a lot of content to make, and it's going to take a while. Yeah, so I'm not surprised at all. And finally, Nadia, Dante's going to be in SMT3 Nocturne Remastered (laughs) as a DLC character after all. So there you go. That is so funny. I'm so glad they did that. You can have the sticker now. Now featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series. Woo! If they hadn't done that, people would have been like, but where's Dante? Where's Dante? I agree. Put Dante in the game. I'm sure like Atlas picked up the phone and said to Capcom, look, okay, you don't want Twitter complaints and I don't want Twitter complaints. Let's just do this thing. Devil May Cry is a small enough game that I expect that they're probably excited to have literally any opportunity to promote the game, even if it's a relatively modest venue like uh, SMT3. I think Devil May Cry 5 did really well, but it's definitely still a bit more of a niche game. So any cross-promotion you have going on between SMT, which of course is extremely niche, and uh, Devil May Cry, it's good. They'll help each other. They're friends. Okay, that is all of the RPG news, Nadia, for the week. Let's continue on to the main topic in which we talk about Square's Summer of Adventure. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, this week we are remembering Square's Summer of Adventure, a blessed period in which three RPGs were released within relatively short space of one another. A couple of highly anticipated RPGs at that. Uh, This Summer of Adventure included special promotions, Nadia, including a soundtrack compilation of Legend of Mana, Chrono Cross, and Threads of Fate that you could get when pre-purchasing each game. Also, there was a Summer of Adventure 2000 knapsack. I want that. That's got to be on eBay somewhere. Uh, It probably is. Do you want to go check? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to look up on my phone. Alas, there is nothing to be found on eBay, so I guess the knapsack has been lost to history. What a damn shame. I like knapsacks. I promise if I ever find one, I'll give it to you, Nadia. (laughs) I don't even know what it looks like. It's probably the lamest thing ever, like, put to fabric. 
So we've probably talked about this during our console RPG quest, because I, I know that we've definitely talked about 2000 at some point, but what were we doing in the mythical summer of 2000, Nadia? I was probably in trying to get through school, or I had just finished school. Either way, I did not have a lot of money, because I did not buy most of these games until much later. And I probably spent, when I think 2000, I think money and games, I think, well, I might have been saving for... Majora's Mask because I was so huge into Ocarina of Time when I heard sequel I was like yes please so I'm yeah I came in a little late to the summer of adventure and I don't even think I played Threads of Fate I did not play the original Brave Fencer Mushishi or whatever his name was Musashi Musashi Mushishi's an anime I had a job at this point I think I had gotten a job the previous summer I was either working for a convenience store or I was working for a KFC and oh. I had money in my pocket for the first time in my life, Nadia. Jingle, and, jingle. And a PlayStation to boot. And I was Ooh. all in on RPGs. And a lot of these games was my first... The Summer of Adventure, in some ways, was my first opportunity to really taste the fruits of mm. brand new RPGs from Square. So I was very excited. I bought Chrono Cross almost as soon as it came out. And I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to get unfortunately i mean don't try just i actually wrote an article about this that will it that is up at the time of this recording or it will be up at the time of this recording about how chrono cross isn't about the story so much as it's about the atmosphere its atmosphere is excellent at that time in square's history it just really nailed the atmosphere of its playstation games so that's kind of what you got to absorb versus the words, which are mostly gibberish, especially thanks to that awful, awful dialect algorithm they were using. It had a killer opening cutscene. Oh, it's still one of the best cutscene openings ever made. Absolutely. This was a time when Square would just go all out and just hit you as hard as possible with their opening cutscenes and the amazing music. Uh, what was the what was the song? Was it Scars of Time that was Scars playing on the opening theme? Yeah, by Mitsuda. Oh, so good. It's really excellent. I love looking up live performances. And I said this on the Retronauts podcast where we talked about Chrono Cross. You can go ahead and, and listen to that. There was a Canadian skater, Kevin Reynolds, who used to skate to like Chrono Cross and Chrono Trigger music. At this time, Chrono Trigger was quite legendary already, but also it had been kind of lost to history. It had been lost to time. It was very hard to find a copy of Chrono Trigger for a reasonable amount of money. So mm -hmm. playing Chrono Cross was a very exciting moment for it. And because there was so much hype around Chrono Trigger, I had really high expectations. And then I was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it does have a really interesting battle system that I like very much. I don't know if you remember it. I remember that it had to do with colors. It's like a, a color-based system, of course, like, air, earth, fire, wind, blah, 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 one element against the other. But yes, you can you carry a, a finite number of elements with you, and you can only use each one once, and you have to attack to build up your stamina so that you can actually use these elements. So you could really create these really interesting combos where you attack like four times and then shoot an element of some kind. And of course, the enemy can do the same to you, so... These were really interesting battles. I never... Chrono Cross is one of those games where I never get bored of fighting the enemies. 
Was it confusing the first time you played Chrono Cross because you were expecting a direct sequel and you totally didn't get that? Yeah, that was a little bit. I had warning. Like I, when I finally got the game, like I I had heard about it like many times through Live Journal, R.I.P. and other blogging platforms. Where's Chrono? Where's Luca? Exactly. So I knew what I was getting into. I knew okay, this isn't exactly a sequel to Chrono Trigger, but then I kind of entered the Dead Sea area and saw them as ghosts and they were like scolding me for ruining the future and i'm like wow this is a nice howdy do these characters i I love and i haven't seen in years are here but they're telling me to f off and i've ruined the future and of course they're just ghosts but what they did with the dead sea area where they took all that nostalgia for chrono trigger and kind of compressed it and purposely killed it like shattered it made it die and kind of put you up against one of the hardest bosses in the game it was kind of heartbreaking at the time because you had all these things i love about chrono trigger just dead and broken but that particular part of the game this comes up in the article i wrote that's up on us gamer right now is so packed with incredible atmosphere that i understand now why they did that and it took me years to realize why they did that i'm still not happy with chrono cross's story direction but just the, the scene in the Dead Sea where you're fighting Miguel against, like, the ruins of Lean's Bell is, like, so... It's just really, really moving, especially since, uh, of course, Mitsuda has an incredible soundtrack going at the same time. Yeah, you wrote about Miguel over on the site. Yeah, Miguel's a really interesting character because he's... <laughs> you go up against him, right? He's he's the guardian of the frozen flame, blah, 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 piece of Labos that fell off, blah, 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 touch it, ultimate power and he faces he faces off against you and he's like this literally this dad in in short in jeans shorts and he looks lame and, and goofy as hell but he he can annihilate you if you don't know what you're doing because he's basically being controlled by fate supercomputer whatever and he has incredible power and it's a whole standoff where oh if you think you defy fate then go ahead and, and take me on He's also a sad character because he kind of wandered into the Dead Sea along with Surge and Surge's father because they were trying to help Surge, who was poisoned by uh, a, a panther or something like that. And they were trying to find medicine for him, and they blew off course into this Chronolopolis slash Dead Sea area, and a whole bunch of stuff happened. And what it all ended up with is Miguel getting sucked there for years and years and years in this place that doesn't really age. He doesn't age. Nothing happens. He's just kind of sitting there guarding this the, the flame. So, and then Chrono Cross famously uses a fairly minor moment in Chrono Trigger, a uh, fairly minor question mark as a Chrono Trigger as his main jumping off point. Yes, I have to give it all the props for that because uh, for, for ages when Chrono Trigger came out, you had... Uh, the guru of time kind of hinting at what you should do uh, to finish up the game before you go on and take on Lavos. And each character has a little personal problem that they have to take care of. And they're, one of the things he says is, someone you love is in trouble, find this person quickly. And it was a mistranslation. So for years, people thought this guy was talking about Shala trapped in the Ocean Palace. Because yes, we don't know what happened to Shala after she uh, stops the Mammon Machine and sends chrono's uh, friends away from the ocean palace so that's what chrono cross was based on basically just what happened to shala why did things work out the way they did um actually chrono trigger on the ds restores um 
a little bit of that too. You can actually take on the Dream Devourer, which has absorbed Shala or part of her. And uh, that's a really, really, really hard battle. It's also a really sad battle because she talks to you after you beat Lavos and she re- reveals, like, I've just given up. I-, I don't care anymore. And she sends you away again. And Magus, of course, isn't happy about that. And he decides, well, I'm going to just kind of erase my own existence too. And he becomes Guile for from Chrono Cross. So here's the thing with me. I don't want to be a naysayer with Chrono Cross because I do think that it is a totally worthwhile RPG. But it also tells me why I'm kind of glad that Chrono the Chrono series didn't continue on to Chrono Break and all of that after the original Chrono Trigger because the original Chrono Trigger was a perfect story. I think so. Much as I love Chrono Cross, its story is a mess and it's not a perfect game by any means. Chrono Trigger, I still believe, is, as we have like rated the game as the best RPG of all time, and I think it totally deserves that because it's just so well woven together. There, you can barely see the seams. You can definitely see the seams in Chrono Cross. I think the fate that befalls Chrono Cross is the one that must befall all our, all all stories about time travel, which is that it got weird. Yes, time travel always gets weird. It's a it's quite straightforward in Chrono Trigger, but it, that's more of a fun adventure story. It even happened in Back to the Future, where oh, yeah. you had a very straightforward. A story about a kid who goes back to the 1950s and accidentally has his mom changes history and his mom falls in love with him. Yeah, it's great, great romp. But and then by Back to the Future too, now there are multiple versions of the characters and he's there in the original Back to the Future, but also not interacting with any of the characters. And it's just like, oh, what's going on? No, this this doesn't work. Yeah, it is a bit headache inducing. Um, I actually was surprised when I marathon. Back to the Future and discovered I liked 3 better than 2. Oh, 3 is way better than 2. Yeah, at least it's just so much easier to follow and it's just a lot more fun. I rewatched Back to the Future 2 in 2015 because it was the date, right? Oh, uh, yeah, that's when I did my marathon too, yeah. And I came out of that movie going, what a mess. That was an <laughs> atrocious film. People remember it for all the cool gadgets and stuff, but that makes up like 5 minutes of the film. Well, like the original Back to the Future was relatively grounded and was actually a, an excellent recreation of the 1950s because at that time, the 1950s were not that far out of memory, right? Right. They, they were nostalgic for that the way we're nostalgic for the 80s now. But then in the Back to the Future 2, they're like, we, we can't even imagine what 2015 is going to be like. Whatever. It's silly. We're just going to be completely silly. And it does not jive at all with no. how they did the 1950s. I just don't like it. Yeah, it seems a little bit haphazard. Um, you look at, you know, what 2015 was, you know, when it happened, and it's like, well, it's a lot of ni- cool phones. <laughs> I mean, if you look uh, to 2015 versus two, uh, 1985, I think Marty McFly would show up and he'd be like, it, it looks the same. Where's the flying cars? I don't understand. But he would totally come upon things like Cafe 80s, you know, like the 80s nostalgia bars and everything. And he would see people with smartphones and be like, what the hell? That's incredible. Why is everyone looking at this little tablet? What are are they looking at in their hands? I don't get this. And where are the buttons on this thing? I think he would be amused to find that the fashion wouldn't actually be that different from the 80s and 2015. (laughs) Yeah, we were definitely rocking the 80s style. We still do in many places. 
I think about this stuff a lot where it's like, if we showed this to somebody from the 1950s, would their my- brains melt? Good, qu- Yeah, good question. Like, if you showed somebody from the 1950s internet culture or tried to explain to them that, oh, yes, I produce a radio show that is exclusively about video games. First, they would be like, what's a video game? <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so you're producing a radio show. Yes, but you have to download it what is download yeah, what does downloading mean you and you make a living off cloud. this what's the cloud I, I even try to explain to my dad what i do he has no idea and he admits he's like when he talks with clients and they say oh what do your kids do like i don't know because my brother's into like domain names and stuff he's like sells them and stuff and i do whatever the hell i do he doesn't understand any of it my parents are vaguely bemused that i work in video games <laughs> like yeah, yeah video <laughs> games. good for you uh, you yeah, always we- wanted to do that and i'm like sure did <laughs> Gonna say, yeah, the, the, I could see them saying, yeah, we expected that to happen. Yeah, so I don't wish to drag Chrono Cross too hard. I just remember that when I was playing it, it was very beautiful, but very slow. And especially the opening sections on the island uh, were not that interesting to me. So I found myself kind of having to slog through it. Yeah, it is a little bit slow in the beginning, especially as I, I was actually replaying it because I was in the mood after recording the podcast with Parrish. And the very first thing you do is get, like, these scales from these three, like, kind of Komodo lizards. and That was the boring part. Exactly. And things are kind of hard to see because, as in that great tradition for 90s to early 2000s square, you had the polygon characters against the pre-rendered backgrounds, which were gorgeous in their own way, but they could be a real colorful mess because it was a tropical locale. So you're looking for this rainbow-colored lizard against this rainbow-colored background, and they're giving you the runaround. And it's not the most fun opening for a game, no. I'm glad you brought up the Retronauts podcast because I'm curious to know what conclusions you reached with it. Uh, well, of course, Parrish is extremely, still extremely enthusiastic about the game. It was myself and Jared Petty there as well. And uh, yeah, we basically concluded that it's still a great game, but the story is just a mess. Even Parrish, who, who wrote FAQs about this game, cannot figure it out. As you said, it's the timelines are so convoluted. It's like, oh, there's a time gurus and the dragon god and another world and this world, and it's just, I don't know what's going on. But as I said before, the game's atmosphere carries it, and so does its battle system and music. And to me, that's what I enjoy most. There's, It's a great game. It's just extremely flawed. I cannot stand the character dialect. Holy crap. I, I, I hate Kid. I hate Kid with... <laughs> Ashton of a thousand sons because she's speaking she's speaking i don't know i think it's australian and it's she's speaking it badly it's you have to be so careful when writing dialect i feel like dragon quest 8 sorry just dragon quest in general since 8 does it quite well for the most part but that takes a lot of work and that takes a, a staff i think who lives in that kind of environment with the whole like uh all the, the british dialects that they use they just ran everyone in Chrono Cross through a, some kind of algorithm, and it was so unnecessary. And it, it, there's, it makes it hard to love any of the characters in this game, and that's really a shame. If I can't understand what they're saying, how am I supposed to like them? Okay, so we dragged it, but what's good about Chrono Cross? Uh, I already said the battle system's still fantastic. The boss fights are really intense. Music is just incredible. It was a beautiful the... game for the original PlayStation. They really threw everything at it. 
They do. They did. The atmosphere, again, even though the story didn't make a lot of sense, it just really carried the, the it carried me through my desire to see more. And uh, yeah, it's not a perfect RPG, but it does have a wrestler who is a lucha and also a priest, and his name is Greco. Name me a perfect RPG. Well, I guess it would be Suikoden 2, right? Suikoden 2, Chrono... Well, Suikoden 2 even has some flaws because of, like, bugs and stuff. But again, Chrono Trigger, is, I think, is as close as it gets to perfect. Uh, I want to say Final Fantasy VI, but that has a lot of bugs and problems and quirks. Okay, so we were talking about the Summer of Adventure... And we actually started with the game that came out last in the Summer of Adventure, Nadia. Uh, there were two others, and they were released in kind of month by month. So you had one that was released in June, that was Legend of Mana. And then you had one that was released in July, that was Threads of Fate. And then we finished with Chrono Cross in August. I would say Legends of Mana and Chrono Cross were definitely the two big ones because everybody remembered Secret of Mana. Nobody played Seiken Densetsu 3, so they couldn't be disappointed by it. And they were like, yeah, Secret of Mana, it's a great game. And so, but then Legend of Mana came out, and everybody was like, what the heck is this? Including myself. I, God, I found that game so slow, like just agonizingly slow. And Chrono, sorry, I mean, I got Chrono on the brain. Secret of Mana is a pretty speedy RPG, if you know how to play it. It has a certain rhythm that's really addictive, but... The enemies just move so slowly in, in Legends of Mana. I had no idea what was going on. It's like when I pick up a Mana game, I just want a top-down RPG where you kill enemies, you equip different weapons. There's a, there's a big tree in there somewhere. I put it wherever you want. I don't care. But Legend of Mana had a lot of weird stuff going on, like world building, and I had no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah, and not world building as in building lore. Like, literally, you were building things. You were building a world. Yes, and I just was not into it whatsoever, even though it is easily one of the most gorgeous games ever released. Would you believe, Nadia, that there are people who will 1,000% stand for Legend of Mana? Oh, I believe it. I have run into a few people like that, and uh, more power to you, because I really want to like this game. It's so nice. It sounds so beautiful. And I just feel like if you gave me this game and put it in, like, the SNES engine, uh, I'd be happy as a clam. <laughs> it didn't happen. I remember when Legend of Mana came out, and I was going to get it, but people were like, this is not a straightforward traditional RPG. Do not get. And I had a limited amount of money, so I ended up holding off. Um, more of a shame. I would have maybe been interested to try it out, because it really did look beautiful on the packaging and everything. I think maybe my problem also was that I was so into the original Secret of Mana. You didn't really have that familiarity with with the original. Maybe you would have come to it with an unbiased mind. Maybe I would have. Um, I might have enjoyed diving into the systems, but I wasn't a big fan of Saga Frontier 2 either, so uh, maybe not. I don't know. But there's a I've lot tried. to Legend of Mana, honestly, between the crafting and the pets and... All of the crazy things that are going on with this game. There's so much to delve into. Yeah, it just makes me wonder why they decided to go that route with Secret of, uh, sorry, with the Mana series versus just a more traditional uh, Final Fantasy adventure slash Secret of Mana slash Seiken Densetsu 3 action-based game. I think that they this was Square that was at its peak kind of inventiveness. They had a lot of yes. money. They could pretty much sell anything they wanted. 
And so they're like, they they were very much in the mold of, well, we've done the traditional RPG. We, we've had a lot of success with that. Well, what can we do to innovate? What can we do to push the genre forward? And so you got Final Fantasy VIII, which came out the previous year. And we got Legend of Mana. You know, they were trying all of these different formats to see kind of what would stick and some worked and some really did not work yeah you do have to give them credit for trying new stuff especially in that sort of pivotal time in their history one thing that really blew me away at the time during the summer adventure is just like how quickly they were releasing games because i was so used to the snes where you got one square game a year maybe if you were lucky and then it was like hey you have all the square games and they're just kind of reaching to a bag and throwing them out at us from moving car <laughs> well this was the time when square square as a premium company was really really in full effect right where they could do no wrong yeah they were more expensive than a lot of games they you were usually in the big cd jewel cases that told you that this is going to be multiple discs and be ready mm-hmm. for a gigantic experience and the, the graphics are going to be the best of the best of the best that you're going to find on any platform and get ready for the best cinematics. And so a lot of people were just buying Square Games sight unseen. Yeah, and uh, sometimes they were enthused and sometimes they were disappointed because I guess when you buy it, let's say you're, you're just a normal person and you buy Final Fantasy VII, you never had an RPG before, and you're like, wow, this is incredible. And then you buy something else that Square Enix puts out, and it's so different because all their games at that time are just so different from one another. Uh, I could see you either falling in love or being like, what is this, and bouncing. There's still plenty to recommend Legend of Mana, I think. the Especially the graphics and that really amazing soundtrack. When we did the Retronauts around Legend of Mana, we spent a long time just listening to the soundtrack. And, I mean, Shimomura is really really good so not surprisingly this uh it was just really nice to listen to yeah it definitely has the visuals and sound nailed down i just wish that it was more fun to play all right and the final one uh it's kind of been lost to history a little bit or maybe overshadowed by chrono cross and legend of mana and that was threads of fate which i think that everybody was kind of dismissing that one out of the gate nadia maybe unfairly yeah, um, I don't think Brave Fencer made the same impression as Final Fantasy or Chrono Cross, and I know I never played it. I, I do remember people saying, well, this is a Zelda killer, and that might have even been one that's where that really that annoying true? term came from. Yes. At least, like, you know, magazines and stuff. What was the what was the fighting game where you you can slice people's limbs off and just instantly kill them? Was that God Bless the Ring? It was Bushido Blade. Uh, Bushido Blade. I always confuse Brave Fencer Musashi with Bushido Blade. I think one is slightly more graphic than the other. Yeah, just a little bit. I just (laughs) like the idea of being able to run away for a long time while somebody's chasing you. That'd be pretty Uh, funny. I've got a board with a nail in it. (laughs) Neo before me, human. But yeah, so Threads of Fate came out. It was handsomely produced. And interestingly, it was reamed for being way too short, Nadia. Oh, that sounds familiar. Uh, at 12 hours per quest per character, which is 24 hours, that's not too short. That's, that's fine. God, I, can, I can see where we came up with the whole sickness of 100-hour games. Well, Nadia, this was a time when we did not have mobile phones and we had less to do in our lives in general. So I think it was a lot easier to digest 100-hour RPGs. 
yes, I used to sit around and do nothing for many, many hours before mobile phones. It was it was a very calming time. But the individual storylines with uh, Rue, who is more of a traditional axe character and Mint, who uses hoops, are, are quite different. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a slightly underrated action RPG. I do like the idea of using hoops as a weapon. <laughs> well, she do you remember... Did, she was described as basically a gymnast. Okay, yeah, because I was going to say, do you remember in, in gym class using hoops? I do, and I did not particularly like them. We used to, like, used to, we used to, you know, try to use them properly for two seconds, then we just, like, start throwing them around like frisbees and get yelled at. So we look back 20 years ago, there's three big RPGs coming out on the PlayStation. I wouldn't necessarily say that this was Square at its creative peak, but I will say that it was definitely Square at the peak of its influence, I want to say, where it just felt like a huge deal whenever Square did literally anything back at this time. Uh, As I said before, it really seemed at the time like Square could do no wrong. And the PlayStation, of course, was just really thriving. And here I was over here with my sad pocket change waiting for Majora's Mask to come out. (laughs) We were only a few months away from the PlayStation 2. I guess that means uh, Final Fantasy IX followed quite soon after the Summer of Adventure. They were really just kind of going bang, 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 bang back then. Yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, that's Man, Square had a really busy 2000, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, it was extremely busy. And they don't really produce like that anymore. Maybe, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's almost as if uh, these games kind of take a long time to make. Games do take a long time to make these days. Thank you, HG Era. So, Nadia, any final thoughts on the Square Summer of Adventure in 2000? I'm a little sorry I missed it when it first came out, but I am glad that I caught up on most of it. And I love Chrono Cross. It's one of my favorite RPGs. I want Legends of Mana to just kind of go into a hole and cover itself. And oh, man, <laughs> you're really a Legend of Mana hater. <laughs> Okay, I I don't wish any specific harm upon it, but it could stay out of my vision. That would be great. And I have no opinion whatsoever about Threads of Fate, because as you said, I feel like that was totally overlooked. It really was, wasn't it? And nobody yeah. remembers Threads of Fate. Did it ever get a re-release of any kind? or is, Can you play it on anything other than a PlayStation? Threads of Fate was re-released as a PS1 classic on PS3, PS Vita, and PSP. Ah, so the usual. I can probably download it if I want, but... Meh, I might have so many games to play through, though. I remember when it came out, people were like, oh, yeah, Threads of Fate. I remember that game with its kind of blocky 3D characters and okay action system. That's that's fine. Exactly. I think that's what it came out to. It's fine. Back of the box quote. It's fine. This was the kind of period, though, when the usually the box art was way better than the actual game. Threads of Fate has really nice box art. It was a good time for box art. They don't try anymore, man. They don't have to. They really don't. I mean, well, I mean, boxes as a thing aren't really a thing anymore, are they? Limited run games and those places that give you the the hard copies of games these days, they they try very hard. And they usually have really good pack-ins. But corporations in general, the first run of a game, it's like, eh, here, have some key art. Good. We're done. So that is our recollections of Square Summer of Adventure. What are your recollections of Threads of Fate, Chrono Cross, and Legend of Mana? Do you want to defend Legend of Mana against Nadia just cruelly <laughs> yelling at Nadia it the and Destroyer. dumping all over it? Nadia the Legend of Mana hater. Rrr, venom dripping from my fangs. 
Yeah, send me an email at cat.bailey at yoasgamer.net or send me a DM on Twitter. My DMs are open. All right, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we look back on a classic track from an RPG because music in RPGs is so very, very important. And this week, we have one that was submitted to us by a listener. See if you recognize this song. All right, Nadia, this week's track is Inferno's Battle or Inferno's War from Riviera, the Promised Land. And it was submitted to us by Sean, who says, I wanted to throw a track of the week at you guys when you handle the PSP RPG quest. A game that I'm a fan of and oft overlooked is Riviera, the Promised Land. It was an RPG in the Wonderswan days, got promoted to GBA, and finally PSP. The track is called Inferno's Battle and is some of the most hype boss battle music of all time. And if you go to the YouTube comments on the PSP version of Inferno's War or Inferno's Battle, they all say the same thing, Nadia. Man, what a nice Castlevania track. <laughs> yes, it is. It definitely exudes traces of Castlevania. It actually reminded me a lot of the opening for Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, um, the opening stage. It's a, it's a good track, though, because I, I am totally pro-Castlevania music. It is very jaunty very hype inducing so it's good by me yeah i've been playing rondo of blood recently and i I was streaming it and i only got to level five but you know that um, is a tough ass game so i'm not surprised it is a tough game yeah so but i really that that music especially the psp version of that music really reminds me of that yeah exactly i love castlevania music so much the thing that's interesting th- about Riviera is that it started on Wonderswan, then came out on GBA, and then finally came out on PSP. Yeah, that's a really interesting journey right there. That's not something you see often. The Wonderswan music is quite simple, honestly. Uh, I, I mean, it, look, it sounds like it comes from maybe more of a Game Boy track. Uh, beep, very, beep, beep. very simple, very simple tunes, I would say. And mm-hmm. then it's slightly better on GBA and then way better on the PSP. Yeah, that's not surprising. I actually wonder how the Wonder Swan sound chip compared to the GBAs. I think the Wonder Swan soundtrack is greatly inferior to the GBAs. Hmm, interesting. And of course, as you said, the PSP soundtrack is is better than the GBAs, so... And there's nothing to... That's not to say that the Wonder Swan's music is bad, per se. It's just inferior. Right. Doesn't have the same body. Here's the interesting thing about Riviera and Nadia. Not only was it developed... Uh, for three separate consoles, uh, eventually getting ported to each. It was part of an ongoing series. Did you know that? Oh. 
I did not know that. Was it the same game that was ported to each system, or was, were there sequels that so followed? So it was part of the Department Heaven series, or Depth Heaven, <laughs> I don't know. A series of video games that was developed by Sting's product team A, headed by Shinichi Ito. There are five known episodes so far. Episode one was Riviera. Uh, episode two was Yggdra Union, a strategy RPG. Okay, I've heard of Yggdra, uh, Yggdra Union. Episode three was, we don't know what it is, but it was originally going to be planned as a PC MMORPG at some point. Yeah. Episode four was Nights in the Nightmare. That would have been the bullet hell game. And episode nine was Gunier, Inferno, the Demon Lance, and the War of Heroes. So it's not a series that just jumps like systems like that. I guess it also jumped genres quite easily. Yes. Uh, well, Gunier was a tactics RPG much like Yggdra Union, but in, in a different way, I think. Uh, Gunier right. reminded me more of... Gunier reminded me more of Final Fantasy Tactics in the way that it was kind of framed in position, where, I mean, it's hard to even describe Yggdra Union. Uh, maybe more Fire emblem <laughs> But only just. Yeah, so they have very different flavors, but uh, 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 Gunier might actually be the most underrated PSP tactics game on that platform. Uh, when we get to the PSP console RPG quest, Nadia, we'll, we'll talk a whole bunch about uh, the Sting and Riviera and all that, because I feel like those are games that really deserve to be delved into a bit more. Yeah, I think we're going to be going into a lot of RPGs that were overlooked in the West, unfortunately. Uh, so the soundtrack was composed by Minako Adachi, Nadia. And interestingly enough, we spent a whole bunch of time dragging Pokemon X and Y last week. <laughs> She was the one who did it. I like, I mean, I don't love Pokemon X and Y's music, but like I said, it has probably my favorite gym leader tune ever. So good for her. Really? Was, was that the techno one? That was the techno one. A complete, just uh, off the wall, I'm going to do this and you can't stop me sort of music. I love it. She also did the Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire music. And I seem to recall that they did a reasonably good job with that soundtrack. So. Yeah, I know everybody loved the, uh, well, the kids who love Ruby and Sapphire roll into the soundtrack because of the horns. They mm. never stop at the horns on the GBA because I guess they could do horns really well. And I don't remember if the horns transferred over to Omega Sapphire now and all and Alpha Ruby. All right. That is the track of the week. If you want to have your own favorite track featured in the episode, send us an email and we will include it. Okay. Continuing on to the mailbag. We had a bunch of responses to the Nintendo DS console RPG quest. Nadia, would you believe that one of the best-selling and most popular Nintendo handhelds of all time created a lot of feelings in people? Yes, it was a big shock that everyone responded to us. But no, seriously, thank you for your responses. Uh, Bishia Ted says, I am really happy to hear someone talk about Covenant of the Plume. All in all, that game wasn't super impressive, but something about it just really hooked me. The story was short, but there was a decent number of completely different paths with different characters and stages depending on story choices and how willing you were to sacrifice characters to the feather. Sacrificing characters also gave your main character a new ability based off of who you killed. And when that was combined with a new game plus, I ended up going through numerous times to try killing every character and getting every <laughs> ending. Well, and okay. What a murderer. Freya, I was going to say Freya's going to kick your ass for that. Last I remember was a determination to somehow beat Freya when she comes to punish you for using the plume too often. I wonder if it's still <laughs> I still have the cartridge everywhere. You can't beat Freya. You... It's just almost impossible. Oh, okay. So you can beat her. Oh, man. Just 
kill God. Do it. It's a JRPG. It's your right. She's just no, but she is a god. She is a god. Yes, a god of love, fertility. If you if you kill so- a god of love and fertility, it's going to screw something up. Speaking of which, I've been streaming Valkyrie Profile over on my streaming channel. Nice. I, I was very proud of myself. I was able to figure out how to plug in my PS3 properly so that it would actually output, which is not as easy as you might think because of its built-in HDCP. And I have my old copy of Valkyrie Profile, so I was able to play the original and not the ROM for the stream. Ooh. It's been good. Good for you. Yeah, I had a really good crowd uh, last time around for part one, nice. and I am looking forward to having more people around for part two as well. Valkyrie Profile's been better than I expected, and man, it moves at a really breezy pace. I played for about That's four good. hours and got quite far, actually. Yeah, good for you. All right, FTL Manta says, one game you didn't mention that I really like is FF12 Revenant Wings. It was a JRPG RTS hybrid that remade a mediocre GBA game into a really enjoyable Final Fantasy spinoff. They re- reused lots of the tracks from the great FF12 soundtrack, had nice pixel art, and really made the RTS combat work better than any non-PC RTS I've ever played. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting was that around this time, for some reason, Japanese developers got really obsessed with turning uh, traditional turn-based RPGs into RTSs. Right, yeah, I remember that. They did that with Mana, with the Mana series as well? Oh, right. I forget which one that is. There's so many Manas. But yes, I do remember that. And of course, that went over great. And by great, I mean terrible. And they also did that with a Super Robot Wars game. <laughs> I'm just picturing cute little robots on the uh, on the battlefield. And then there things. was Revenant Wings, which in a lot of ways is kind of lost to history at this point. I mean, we didn't yeah. even bring it up when we talked about it on the DS. Which is too bad, because yes, I have heard good things about Revenant Wings. Uh, has the Viera. Any game that has the Viera is good by me. They also said the DS also had the best Fire Emblem game ever made. The improbably good Fire Emblem 12, which would be Fire Emblem New Mystery of the Emblem. A remake of the second game, uh, the, the second game to come out in the series. Despite being bracketed by the two worst games in the series, it managed to achieve tactics game perfection with super tight combat and awesome map and objective design. They also had an amazing number of well-tuned difficulty levels and a few bonkers broken ones. So <laughs> New Mystery of the Emblem, Nadia, came out on the Nintendo DS. It was not released in North America. This was... I was wondering about that. A lot of yeah. people would say this was the nadir of the series when it was on the verge of being canceled. I enjoy the shot that they said that they took at Fire Emblem Awakening when they said that they were sandwiched between the two worst games in the series. <laughs> Oh, is that what that was about? Yes. <laughs> and here I am, my awakening loving ass just sitting here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I hated Fire Emblem Shadow Dragons a lot. And a lot of I it to like do it. was with the really ugly 2.5D uh, graphics. But yeah. if New Mystery of the Emblem is that much better, I'm honestly genuinely curious about how much better it is. Now, you said it was the second one released, that, but... I thought Shadow Valencia was a, a remake of the second yeah, one. Yeah, you're right. Um, so there was the original Fire Emblem, and then there was Shadow of Valencia, and then New Mystery of the Emblem was kind of a remake. Like, the first half mm. was a remake of Shadow Dragon for the Super Nintendo, but then the second half was a new story that took place two years later. Okay, so, yeah, I see where they're going with that. It's a little confusing, that timeline right there. Just a little bit, but all you really have to know is tactics, swords, dragons pegasus you're good then we started getting games like genealogy of the holy war and which i hope they remake someday fingers crossed me too 
I really liked, I would really like to see remakes. And I was really hoping Shadows of Valencia was the start of a, a glut, but apparently not. Functron says, sorry, I have to rave about DQ9 for a, minutes, a few minutes. This is for you, Nadia. It's so good. I love its openness, its bright art, its ridiculous gear like tree trunk helmets. Yes. I love the depth of the class system, which encourages you to find your own roles for your party members without ever really locking you into a particular build. I love the crafting, which is entirely optional, but has the coolest gear, and I love how it's charming and silly and bittersweet in the way that Dragon Quest seems to specialize in. I was lucky enough to live somewhere with a friendly local video game store that held DQ9 meetups, so I got to experience the multiplayer mode a fair bit. It was really good. The fact that you could just run around in somebody else's world and do whatever you want is still pretty impressive. You could even run up to important NPCs and have unique conversations, including bosses. DQ9's tag mode is still the best version of Street Pass I've had the chance to enjoy. I want I went to PAX the year it came out, and I treasure my copy with the maxed out in and the Masayuki and Kawasaki locker maps. Sounds like a very well-loved copy of Dragon Quest IX. I'm kind of jealous. I really like the fact that you were able to go to meetups in the West of, of other Dragon Quest fans. That's that's something I wasn't really able to do, except, as I mentioned previously, like Oticon. And I think Fan Expo in Toronto had a... I connected with a few people there. But yeah, I'm, it makes me happy when Dragon Quest fans can get together and share the love. That is it for the mailbag, and that is it for our episode. If you want to... Follow us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And I recommend that you leave a review if you enjoy the show. I'm also streaming pretty regularly these days over at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. So toss me a follow and join me sometime. I've been playing Valkyrie Profile on Saturday in a lead up to my big retrospective for Acts of the Blood Gods. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. In the meantime, as always, we'll be back next week to talk more about the wonderful genre that is RPGs. Until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring.